All right, everybody, welcome back. And today, joined by a super special guest, California Teacher of the Year and published author, talking about his new book, Hollowed Out. We have Jeremy S. Adams. Jeremy, thanks for coming on. Jack, so much for the invitation. You're definitely one of my youngest hosts. <laughs> yeah, I had a feeling uh, when I was tweeting at you that you would be like, man, I'm, am I going to go on the podcast with the kid whose pin tweet is Gronk dancing to levels by Avicii? <laughs> I was, I was a little surprised, honestly. You know what? I'll be honest when it comes to like, one of the things I've learned about publicity is don't be picky. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you're liberal, conservative, East coast, West coast. Uh, I've, you know, one of the things I learned is that, uh, you always say yes. You always say yes. It doesn't matter if it's a two, I've, I've been on radio at 2 a.m. I've been on Fox and Friends in the morning. Um, I've been on the podcast of uh, the former Speaker of the House. And now, Jack, I'm on with you. So, you know, I, <laughs> wow, I, will, yeah. I, I, I will talk to anybody and, every, and everybody, uh, especially because I do believe in the, the importance and the power uh, of, of the book. And, and it's, it's a conversation I think we, we have to have uh, as a country. So I'm happy to talk to you. You know, I, I have a child who's 19 years old and I have students who are your age. So I oh, kind of nice. feel much... I feel much more comfortable with this than, you know, talking to, you know, a, bu a, a bunch of uh, historic figures, you know what I mean? And famous people. So yeah, that's, a little, that's, that's a little more stressful. We're, we're no Fox and friends here, but we do our best. Um, you know what? Jack from Tampa is just as good. Don't, <laughs> don't limit yeah, yourself. From friend. Massachusetts living in Tampa. So. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. So it's warm for you now then. I mean, it, must it be is. Hot. Today was like, I, my, and my brother, my twin brother goes to school back in mass. So. And he sends me, uh, you know, pictures and it's like 13 degrees. I'm like, man, today was really cold too. It was 60 degrees out. Yeah. No, thank you. No, thank you. Like it's going to be 70 here uh, in California. Oh. So, you know, and, and again, I do feel all bad for you because, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the Super Bowl in a four days because I'm a Rams fan. Oh, and nice. I, yeah. And, and I know that, you know, you guys are done. So um, <laughs> uh, sorry about that, Jack. I, I feel bad about that. A little hey, bit. you know what? It happens. Tom Brady played his balls off and, uh, he of almost course. got us. He almost got us back for sure. Cooper effing cup though. You, I had him on fantasy though. I think we're on the same team here. Cause I had him on fantasy, Mr. Amazon. I was like, that was the, a big, the, it was live. It was um death taxes and Cooper cup, 25 points a game with two touchdowns, 120 yards and 10 receptions. So you were saved in the end. Absolutely yeah. saved. Right. I was I was a Cooper Cup fan always have that, been that had to be like a religious experience in the very end uh like the burning bush or like the ball going into Cooper Cup's hand so uh, we were definitely we were definitely screaming out here in California so uh so yeah no I'm 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 excited for the Super Bowl but Jack I'm more more excited to talk to you for sure uh, oh I'm flattered and it is only the second time that a host city has hosted the Super Bowl with their team behind Tampa of course but I will tell you what before we get into the book um, which I loved. I it was the most excited to the most upset I've ever. I was at the the Irish bar downtown here, and it was all college students. And when Brady ties the game up, it's everybody's going bananas. And then within thirty seconds, Cooper Cup catches two passes for like sixty yards, and uh, your guy there knocked in a game winning field goal. Well, I had actually stopped watching. I thought we had it in the bag. Uh, you know, I, and I also like there was a certain angle that um, that, that you could see the gray hair uh, on Tom Brady. And I thought <laughs> this guy, this guy's done. And, and let me tell you, Jack, and again, of course, I know we're here to talk about education and culture and, you know, American civilization and big ideas. But I got to tell you, 
And my students will tell you this. I called it that he was retiring. I absolutely called it that he was retiring. And you want to know how I knew Jack? You want to know how? Giselle. Giselle. Yes, absolutely. Because like in the second quarter, when they were getting destroyed, the, the, the camera really quickly looked at her and she was smiling and she was happy. <laughs> and I'm like, this woman does not want him to play anymore. And no. I, don't, I don't blame her. I don't blame no, her at all. I don't blame so her either. I'm like, she, she's thinking this is the end of the road. She's happy. And so I told my students they didn't believe me. But once again, Mr. Adams was right, baby. Of course. Fucking Mr. Adams doesn't get much wrong. And that's what brings us to hollowed out. So what is hollowed out for all these degenerates that listen to me? All my buddies and stuff. Well, hollowed out uh, is essentially it is uh, what I feel like I have spent my entire life working in order to do. Like I feel like, there, you know, when you're young, you have sometimes a sense of, of what you hope hope your life will be you know you kind of have these big dreams uh you you kind of conjure up what your mountaintop will look like and you know when i was your age i never imagined i would be a teacher because my parents were teachers and we always want to be better than mom and dad and and i never imagined i would be a teacher uh but but what became very obvious to me was that uh we have a a profound colossal titanic problem uh facing the lives of young people today and i see it in a way that other people don't because I spend six or seven hours a day with, with, with teenagers. Um, you know, one of the cool things about being a teacher is, you know, we're not going to be famous. We're not going to be rich. We're not going to have a lot of power, but the cool thing is sometimes we're like, you know, uh, uh, we're kind of like a fortune teller or Nostradamus, you know, we see things a little bit early. And I think a lot of us who have been in the trenches of the American classroom, Jack, see that there are colossal issues coming our direction that maybe politicians and people in CNN and Fox News and you know uh, really kind of the people with the blue checks on, on Twitter, they're, they're gonna be a little late to, to, to seeing what's happening here. And so I wanted to write a book that was a warning uh, to people to say, look, these young people are growing up and they are acquiring a value system that's not going to allow them to live full and meaningful and passionate lives, that they are literally being hollowed out of the models and the values that typically lead to human flourishing. And it's not their fault. It is our fault. It is the adults who have completely abandoned them. We've given them phones and devices and hope that they would find a meaningful path of life. And they haven't done it. And we need to talk about why that is and what we're going to do about it. And that's, I couldn't have said it better myself, honestly. I was at the library downtown. And I saw it and I started reading it and it hooked me right away. But so what does hollowed out mean to you? Because that's what the book is about. But what does it mean to you? Yeah, so when, when, when you think of the things that typically, when, when people ask human beings, what makes you joyful? What makes you happy? What gives your life purpose and meaning? You know, the Greeks use this phrase, uh, flourishing, you know, human flourishing. That I, you know, we, you know, Aristotle says, we don't just want to live, but, but we don't just want to live, but we, we want to live well. And what does it mean to live well? What allows human beings to flourish, to, 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 to feel like their lives have purpose and meaning and order? And when you ask people that, it tends to be the same basic five or six things. People tend to be, have meaningful lives because of the connections they have with their family, being a father or a mother, uh, being uh, a, a son or a daughter. They tend to find meaning in their religious faith. They tend to find uh, meaning in the connection to their community and to their country. They tend to find meaning through learning, through traveling, through passions, through hobbies, through friendships, through connections uh, to things that, that they consider to be bigger than themselves. And so it's interesting because if you ask a young person, uh, what do you want to do? 
typically they say, well, I just want to do whatever it is I want to do. Don't ask anything of me, right? It's like asking me to take my, the trash out or to go run an errand. I, just let me do what I want to do. Let me play my video games. Let me, let me do what I want to do. And that's fine for a little while, right? When you're young, that's natural. You should be selfish when you're young, actually. But when you get older and you keep wanting to live a life of indulgence, and you keep wanting to live a life where you don't want to connect to somebody uh, through marriage and you don't want to connect to somebody through friendship uh, and, and you have a really negative, cynical view of your country. Um, what happens is you're, you're hollowed out. Those, those things that give our lives substance and, and, and the contours of purpose are gone. I mean, you, you don't, you know, people don't go to church anymore. People don't want to say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. People don't want to get married anymore. They don't want to have kids anymore. They don't read. I mean, that's a big thing. Uh, if, if you want to have a sense of, of the epic sense of how big life is and how just what's possible in this, in this just little nanosecond of life we get in this universe, go read. Reading is about thinking big thoughts and feeling mighty emotions. Damn, to say that we're not going to like have access to that anymore because we want to simply look at the minutia of our screens, it's pathetic. It's sad. It hollows us out. I don't know if you know this, Jack, but one out of five millennials say that they don't have a good friend in the entire world. But typically, when you ask Americans what is the loneliest demographic, it's the elderly, right? Because you know they're, they're older, their families don't visit them. It is really sad that the, the, the loneliest part of America's social tapestry now are young people because, because they don't know how to kind of create that tissue of connection. You know, they don't go to movies. They don't go to football games the way that they used to. They don't go out. They don't wander. They stay in their rooms a lot. And so that's what I mean, Jack, by hollowed out is, is that instead of having kind of a, a, a full life and a really substantive soul, We've hollowed out all the things that, that, that give life its, its, its order. How did that end up happening, though? Because I feel like, you know, a lot and what you say has a lot of sentiment. And I it really bums me out when I see people like even my family, for instance, I want to talk to you about this specifically. One of the big things in your book was family dinners. And yeah. I, my brother and I were both athletes growing up. But no matter what, no matter who was home or whatever it was. Uh, and it, sometimes it felt like I was an only child because Michael never was at the family dinners. He was always hanging out with his friends, but it was, it was always family dinners. It was always helping do the dishes and stuff like that. But why, why are we the way that we are? We're weird. We're a weird generation. Yeah. Well, God, that's a great question. And I can give you the kind of the, the easy uh, and the hard uh, answer there. Let me start with the easy answer. Uh, I, I think the easy answer is that you are like that um, because I think that by and large, uh, my generation, again, and, and, you know, one of the things that like when you write a big national book like this, you know, and you're not famous, like I'm not famous, but when you write a big book and it does really well and you, a lot of people like contact you and say really like people are really mean, you know? And I, um, and so like, whenever like anybody contacts me, I kind of like when you wrote your wonderful little note to me, I kind of, I took a deep breath. I'm like, okay, is this going to be somebody who's mean? Is this somebody who's going to be really, really critical? Oh, um, and, and I'm kind nasty. Of, yeah. <laughs> no, you were, you were wonderful. Uh, I would say most people were good. Um, but, but the thing that, that really, really hurts me um, is when people think that the book is a criticism of, of your generation. It's, it's not. Um, you, know, you, you are no, no more responsible for the world that you're living, living in than a mirror is responsible for the image that it reflects. You are absolutely not responsible for that. And I think that you ask why the simple answer is my generation absolutely took for granted 
um, that students and young people and children would find their way in the world if we just gave them space, if we just gave them a cell phone, that you don't have to teach people the value of religious faith that you don't have to teach people uh, the beauty of, uh, of the country, warts and all, by the way. I'm a big believer that, you know, I think we should be teaching all of it. I mean, I, you know, I wrote a, a piece in the Washington uh, Examiner called the 90% solution, which is teach all the great stuff, but teach all the bad stuff too. I don't think this is hard. Everybody who, who's fighting about what we should be teaching, teach all of it. Um, and, and so I think that we, we, we took uh, our families for granted. We took the country for granted. Uh, and I think, frankly, if I'm being really honest, I think as parents, it's really hard to be a parent. And it's just, you know, when you guys, and, and you're talking about the section of the book talking about meat, eating meals, you know, if you want to eat in your room by yourself, it kind of gives me a chance to, to relax. It gives me a chance to watch some TV or play on my phone or have a little romantic dinner with my wife. And hey, the kids don't want to be here anyhow. Fine, get your meal, get the hell out of here. That's fine. And so I think the answer is that, that we didn't under, appreciate the connective tissue. Right. We didn't appreciate that these habits have to be renewed every generation. Uh, and, and I think sometimes, you know, kids don't want to go to church, but you teach them anyhow. Kids don't always want to say the Pledge of Allegiance, but you explain why you do it anyhow. Kids don't want to eat the meals. And instead of, allow, instead of explaining why these things have, have been there in perpetuity, we got lazy. And we assumed that the students would find their way on their own. And they simply haven't. Well, don't blame yourself too much, Jeremy, or your generation, because that, that's bullshit. Like we we're grown ass people are about to be like we're young adults in our generation. Like it's our responsibility, you know, because uh, I've seen it in my football coach. used to talk to us, talk to us about this all the time. Oh, like, you know, the wussification of America, like we're being we've been coddled and it's yeah. bullshit and it sucks. And so it's like, why? Is it, it's, it can't be all your fault. It can't be. There's no, 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 no. I understand what you're saying. And I appreciate you saying that, by the way, that it's not all of our fault. But, but I, I would say to you that uh, as young people, you kind of accept the assumptions of the world that you're born into, right? I mean, that, you, know, you, you just kind of assume that what you're experiencing is normal. And it's the adults that are the ones who create the parameters of normal. So in that way, um, I mean, I, it, 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 you know, it's not your fault, but, but it becomes somewhat of your responsibility when you begin to realize that it's broken, you know, and, and that's, I think that's what you're saying is, look, we know that, I mean, it, it's interesting. So let me tell you a story about uh, happening in class, in class today, Jack. So I, I created this, um, this slide in my class today. And I, in the second semester, I teach AP macroeconomics. And I was doing a lecture today about the difference between you know, what are the problems with GDP? And I don't know what your major is. I don't know if you know much about it. I'm taking macro right now, Jeremy. Beautiful, right? So GDP is just simply a dollar value, right? It doesn't talk about the well-being of a country, right? It doesn't talk about the environment or the healthcare or the literacy or the amount of crime or incarceration or any of that, right? GDP is just a dollar value and it's really, really limited. You know, China has the second greatest GDP in the world, but who the hell would want to live there, right? Because there's no well-being. There's no political freedom. There's no, you know, it's just, you would never want to be there. And so I have this slide about um, uh, USA Today came out with a study about a month ago and it said, this percentage of Gen Zers have trouble in the following. And it had this long list. They, uh, Gen Zers have trouble finding happiness. 
They have trouble making friendships. They have trouble with romance. They have trouble reading. They have trouble paying attention. And they have like, they listed all these things about what Gen Zers have trouble with. And it's, it's demoralizing because it's all the good stuff. You know, it's like all the good stuff of life and it's what they can't do. And this kid laughed. And I, and I said to him, I said, and his name was Jack, actually. Uh, I said, Jack, what's... Oh, classic Jack yeah. just being assholes. Uh, no, no, he wasn't, though. I said, Jack, what's, what's so funny? And he says, this is completely true. He's like, 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 this statistic completely nailed what our problem is, is that we cannot, we don't know how to do these things. And keep in mind, I mean, there are all kinds of other problems, you know. Uh, I mean, a lot of young men in their 20s, I don't know, again, maybe my macroeconomic teacher for a minute, if you look at the labor force participation rate for men in their 20s, they're not getting jobs. You know, it is men in their 20s who are going home and staying with mom and dad, not dating, not going out. And as I say, you know, guys, when you play video games 12 hours a day, that's not attractive. No woman is going to want to marry you and have children with you um, if, if that's the kind of way that you spend your time. And so it's the same thing, though, Jack, over and over and over again. Young people have been kind of They've bought into this cult of radical individualism that says, don't ever connect yourself to anything that's going to ask much of you. I mean, you talked about football and sports. One of the problems I worry about with COVID is that you see a lot of athletic and academic and artistic programs, which with absolutely declining enrollments and, and participation, because young people are like, you know what? I spent 18 months in a, in a cocoon in my room where I was comfortable. Nobody ever asked anything of me. I'll just, I'll stay there. Thank you very much. And, and, and that's, you know, that's really, I think, one of the long-term problems. I mean, people think, it's funny, people think I wrote a hollowed out about all the problems that kids are going to have after COVID. These things have been happening for a long time, but they've been accelerated and amplified by COVID. I don't know if that makes any sense, but- No, that's... that makes total sense. COVID just completely exacerbated what our issues are. And it's like, why- I think part of it could be we grew up at a really weird time, or at least people born from, I don't know, let's say like 97 to 03, 04, like the kids you're teaching now, uh, you know, right when you're starting to kind of get conscious of the world, it's the financial crisis, 2008 and nine. And, you know, you're so you're trying to just do your thing and your parents are arguing or it's stressful. And I don't know. But, but that doesn't explain why we've shifted so much from the organization to the individual. Cause like you talked about, and I really like this is how we used to be so focused. Oh, what organization you're a part of. Okay. I'm part of the football team. I'm confirmed in the Catholic church. Yep. Uh, all this great stuff. I'm honors club, chess club, whatever it may be. But, but now it is shifted. And I don't really know why, it has shifted so much to the, oh, I just, I put up 32 points last night, or I had 16 kills in my Fortnite win. Right. I'm pretty or, cool. Or, you know, we, we were talking about football. Do you remember that guy um, in the, uh, earlier in the playoffs, uh, when the Cowboys were trying to score in the last, uh, the last drive, and the guy decided to do a little celebration, right, when they're trying to. Yeah, uh, no, I know. I, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and it's like, what are I you do. talking about? You, 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 you need to, like, help your team here. And you're doing a celebration about yourself. Um, mm. And so, you know, I mean, so people, again, I, I hope people listen to your podcast. And I, I just pray to goodness people will read the book because I feel like, you know, sometimes it's hard to explain it 
like this, but, but I would guess I would say it like this, Jack, is that we already had a radically individualistic culture, right? And so before the phones, before COVID, before all of that, you know, even starting perhaps in the 1960s, uh, you began to get a sense of, of this individualism that said, look, uh, I, I don't want to necessarily have to be connected to um, a family. I don't want to be connected to a church. Uh, I, I, I don't want to be connected to a place. I mean, it, what's kind of weird is, you know, we are a tribal people. Human beings, we evolved in, in these small nomadic groups for millions of years. I mean, the, if you think about it, uh, the agricultural revolution wasn't until 12,000 years ago, right? So we are, we are tribal creatures. We need to be around one another to survive. We need to cooperate. We need to engage one another. Uh, you know, we need to be active. Uh, and, 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 and that is how we survive for millions of years. That's how we evolve. And what's really weird, Jack, is that this is really kind of the first time, I mean, 50, 60 years out of, you know, millions of years of evolution is very small, but we have essentially where we are breaking away from our tribe, right? We're saying, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I, I don't want to participate in this. And as you brilliantly just said a minute ago, you know, the beauty of liberal democracy, the beauty of America was that instead of using my gender or my race or my class to tell me what I had to be connected to, in America, we said, now you're going to have the freedom to connect to the things that you believe in, not because of your family or your geography or your sexual orientation or your class, damn it, you can connect to whatever you believe in, whatever. If you want to, if you want to be from Tampa and root for the Vikings and, and be a Buddhist who likes to go on long walks in Greece in August, then do what, I mean, do you, do whatever you want to do. The beauty of liberal democracy in America is using the freedom to connect to the things that you find meaningful. But what's happened, Jack, is that we have misunderstand freedom and liberty so that instead of connecting to the things that we believe in, we've used that freedom to not connect to anything, right? We, we've literally decoupled ourselves from everybody and everything. And that's where liberty has become licentiousness. Freedom has become indulgence. And instead of connecting to, you know, it used to be that, well, you know, maybe you don't have to connect to your tribe, but connect to an institution, connect to a church, connect to a cause, connect to a political party. I mean, your generation is so cynical about every institution, right? Religious institutions, political institutions, uh, uh, moral institutions, uh, any kind of institution. Young people are like, ah, it's, 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 it's all corrupt. It's all imperfect. Uh, I just don't want anything to do with that. Um, and as a result of that, you're, you know, this, no wonder you're so lonely. Right. I mean, this is what happens when you don't connect to anything. So, you know, you have a culture of radical individualism. You have people who are literally disconnecting from their country, their kin, their community, their church, everything. And then what we do right at the kind of peak of that culture of radical individualism, what do we do, Jack? We give you guys the technology to entertain yourselves while you're alive. Right. That is the duet. That right there. That coupling of radical individualism with the technology, which came around at the just the worst friggin' time. Like literally, if you had to pick a time for this technology to come around, this was the worst time. And so essentially it took radical individualism, put it on steroids, and then COVID set it on fire. There you go. I'm done. I don't know what else to say. No, that was very well said. So what you're saying is that we took the freedoms that we you know, fought and won against the British. So we won those and we bled for them. 
and it was the freedom to pursue whatever, to pursue higher learning and things like that. And it's shifted into a, I have the freedom to not pursue that higher learning. Like I can just kind of do whatever. Exactly. Freedom to has shifted to freedom from. And, and, and the, I mean, you want to, I mean, you can go back and read Adam Smith uh, and, and some of the Enlightenment thinkers, but, you know, they would tell you, if you give a young man a wife, a child, a house, a job, and a few hobbies, he is not going to go around as a cynical, snide, snarky. He's going to say, I have, I have a life. I have a reason to live every day. I'm surrounded by, you know, my life isn't perfect. And maybe my wife complains at me all the time and my children disrespect me and my job friggin' sucks and my, my team keeps losing and I can't lose any weight. I mean, I'm not like I'm describing my life or anything here, but you know, <clears throat> you know, your life necessarily isn't going to be perfect, but people a hundred years ago, Jack, were not talking about how depressed they were. Right. No. People, I mean, this is like one generation of existential crisis. I mean, you, I mean, you guys live in a universe that has no anchors of meaning. I mean, and because they've all kind of been taken away and thrown away. Um, I mean, if you take away my family, my faith and my country and my books, by the way, I don't know if you can see this, you know, you can sell my books. I think you can tell by the book, I, my, my, my book that I, I love to read. Um, I, I, it would be hard for me to find meaning and purpose in my life. Definitely. I feel the same way. Um, but you were talking about the phones and I, I thought this was fascinating when you brought up in, in hollowed out about how people are kind of the celebrities or the celebrities of our generation are just people like the celebrities of past, they're heroes of sports and of literature and of yeah. doing advancing humanity versus people who are famous now are just famous for, uh, being good looking, I guess, you know, doing numbers on social media. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, and that's, yeah, that's a great point. And, and one of the points I was trying to make there was that when we look at celebrity nowadays, uh, we, we do look at it differently. I, I think a lot of young people, and I, I've been, you know, sometimes, you know, as the years go on, the gap between my students and me gets bigger and bigger. Right. And sometimes they'll say something. I'll be like, what, like, what are you saying? And what, what has struck me as really odd in the last decade is that you have a lot of people in history who are so, are famous because they did something consequential, right? Um, you know, Martin Luther King was famous because he was leading the civil rights process, right? Uh, you, you know, I mean, Abraham Lincoln was famous because he was president. Uh, Oprah Winfrey is famous because she created this media empire. Serena Williams is famous because she's the best female tennis player of all time. But a lot of young people today, they see celebrity and fame as the goal, not as a byproduct of achievement, but as the goal. And so, you know, they, I think most people in the past would, would say it's really weird if you have all the trappings of celebrity and fame, but you didn't do anything to really get those accolades. It's empty, it's hollow, right? right? It doesn't mean anything. That's why, you know, a lot of times if, if you read the, the, the journals or the conversations of royalty in the past, you know, kings and queens would be like, you know, I have all this fame, but I didn't do anything for it. And, and I wish I could just be a normal person. And I think it's kind of giving voice to this idea that, you know, uh, uh, that fame and celebrity without the foundation of, of, of real accomplishment means nothing. Um, and, and I think that's what's so weird to me is, you know, in the book, you remember I talked about uh, my students are very upset that I don't get to have a blue check. Yeah, my, I do remember that because I, right? I when I looked you up on Twitter, I was like, oh, 
He doesn't have a check. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have a check and that's, that's okay. Uh, that's fine. Uh, you know, but, but the things my students like, they're not like for me, I, you know, I get really excited. You know, for instance, I was published in Newsweek a few weeks ago. I was really, really excited. Right. And, and the students just kind of, you know, you know, they, they shrug their shoulders a little bit, but they're like, but you know what? Mr. Adams has a Google profile. He is the number one Jeremy Adams on Google. See, that's what, and that's what impressed them, which wow. I just find so damn bizarre. It's like, who cares? Uh, why do you have the Google profile, you know? And so it, it is a weird value system. Um, and I think when you replace moral values with material values, you're going to see that kind of degradation in meaning and purpose that leads to a hollowed out generation. Have we become a more material generation than the, you know, of than the generations before us? Absolutely. There's a, there's a famous study uh, that UCLA used to do. And actually UCLA continues to do it. And they asked the, the freshmen uh, this question. They're like, would you rather have a meaningful philosophy of life or would you rather just be wealthy? And in the 1960s and the 1970s, it was overwhelming. Well, if I had to pick between money and being a happy, joyful person, I'll take that. And in the last 20 years, it has gone the absolute opposite direction uh, where there is, and I wouldn't even call it materialism. I would call it consumerism. Um, this idea that I am, a, I, I am what I consume. Uh, and I think when you confuse the qualitative value of being a person of substance and conviction and kindness and, and compassion and wisdom and, what, and love and whatever, when you confuse those qualities with the quantitative state of having something, I think it distorts your moral perspective. Um, you know, when, when I was a kid, which wasn't that long ago, uh, when I was a kid, I saw somebody drive by in a nice car. And my thought was, damn, I hope I can be as successful as they are so I can drive a car like that or live in a big house. My students don't think they just want the car. They just want the house. The work is something they don't particularly talk about. And this is also why I'm gonna, I'm gonna come off as a little conservative here, sorry, but I do think it's really, really bad when you tell an entire generation that uh, anybody who is successful hasn't done it as a byproduct of character and hard work and education and diligence and grit, but somehow they simply manipulated the system. When you tell young people that, it's a huge disincentive for doing the things that lead to success in American civil society. And I think it's, it, it's you know, absolutely toxic. I think it's one of the worst things in our culture when young people believe that they don't have agency, that they're not in control of their own lives, um, which I think is the cornerstone of, of American belief. That doesn't sound like conservatism to me. That just kind of sounds like common sense. I would agree with you, but I, but I think that, you know, I, you're probably too young to remember this, but I remember uh, Barack Obama in 2012 made a comment um, where he said, you know, to all you people who are all successful, you know, you didn't do that. You didn't build that. Uh, you know, that was done because of all these other things that went into it. And conservatives completely freaked out about it. Um, and I actually know the point he was making. The point he was trying to make is, you know, if you went to public schools, somebody else paid for that education. You know, if, if you drive on roads, somebody else paid for that. I understand the point President Obama was making. It was actually a good point. But I think conservatives also, though, had a good point, which is that sometimes on the left, there is this really bad habit of saying that if, if your life isn't what you want it to be, it's because you're a victim of circumstance, that somebody is doing something to you, not that you made crappy decisions, not that you decided to ditch school, not that you decided to do drugs when you were a teenager, not that you decided to do this or do that. 
um, you know, somebody, somebody has made you into a victim. And I, that's not to say that people don't have bad things happen to them. They do. Uh, I have students who come from extraordinary poverty, but most of those students also realize, look, I have a chance to get an education here. I have a chance to learn every day. And if I decide not to come, if I decide not to work, nobody's preventing me from doing that. Now it might be harder for me because I have, you know, three siblings at home and, you know, I don't have a great living situation, but at the end of the day, I believe in myself, I'm in control of me and I'm going to make the most out of it. If you take away that, that belief system of individual agency, that's how you get a kind of fatalism that I see in a lot of young people today. Um, I feel like we've kind of seen, it's been weird the past you know, 10 years where we've seen, uh, it's almost like a pendulum, like one year, every four years, it'll swing very far left or a little bit left and then a little bit right. And it just gets farther and farther mm -hmm. to the point where now we're looking at right now where Biden, which is very left of the pendulum. And it looks like it's kind of looking like it's going to swing back in either. And DeSantis is going to leave and he's going to run for president or Trump might run again. And it's going to go back to that extreme right. And, uh, you know, that's not contributing. That has to be contributing to how young people yeah, are feeling. Well, yeah, that's absolutely. Let me, let me make this point, Jack about politics, I, one of the reasons why I think politics has become so toxic is because young people are, are very political. And that, now that doesn't necessarily mean that they're out there voting. It means that what you guys consume on your social media, what you guys see on, on TikTok and what you see on Instagram uh, and what you see, it, it's, it's highly politicized, it's highly political. Um, and what happens is when you're a young person and you don't, you know, you don't really identify with your family. Um, you don't really identify with your country. Uh, you don't have a lot of friends. Uh, you certainly don't go to church. Uh, you don't really have any hobbies and you don't read any books. What is it? Something's got to fill in your identity. And what has filled in the identity of a lot of young people is, look, I am a hardcore fill in the blank. Am I a Bernie bro? Am I a MAGA guy? And so when, let me explain why that's so toxic. When politics fills that spiritual and personal void, politics becomes toxic because when people disagree now, they're not disagreeing about ideas, they're disagreeing about people. And so when somebody disagrees with you now, it's not, hey, I disagree about what the tax rate should be or if we should, you know, how strong our border security should be. Now it's, no, you disagree with me and now you are against me. It's personal. It's per exactly. The worst thing that we can say in politics is, Politics is personal. No, politics is about policy. It's how we settle our disputes in this country. But I mean, it, it's interesting because did you, I don't know if you remember the part in the book where I talk about how it used to be when people were like go to dating sites and, and the date and they would go to somebody like match them up. They, the, the thing that used to be the, the killer was religion, right? You're not going to have an evangelical Christian uh, or, a, you know, a, a kind of a, a very conservative Muslim dating a, a liberal atheist, right? That's just not gonna happen. And these people who do this for a living now, who, who play matchmakers say, nowadays it's politics. Like people will say on their card, I don't want to date anybody. I don't wanna talk to anybody who votes the opposite way that I do. That I just don't want anything to do with them. And, and to me, that's a good sign of how toxic our politics has become. And I mean, I don't know about for you, but in my world, I've seen a lot of friendships really go down in the last two or three years, really um, 
go down the, the mountainside uh, towards a kind of a negative death uh, be, because of politics, uh, because it's, it's supplanted so much that's, that's vital in our, in our lives and in our souls. Well, I don't, um, I don't, my mom and her friend, her friend's a school teacher and they always, my mom would have off on Thursdays or something. So uh, shout out to Mrs. Andrews. Mrs. Andrews would come over and have a glass of wine with my mom and Mrs. Andrews would vote one way and my mom would vote another but they just wouldn't get into it. They just talk yeah. about, they would kind of talk about some of the things you talked about, like, Oh, you know, this student was being like rude today or this, that, and the other thing. So, it, but, and that really sucks that that happens, that these politics are ruining us, but where did it become and why did it become this toxic pendulum versus, Hey, like we all want to make America a better place for everybody. And this is how I think it should be done. And this is how you think it should be done. But we're all kind of the ship, the pirate ship's going in the same direction. Yeah. And, and I think that like when you talk about, well, what started it, uh, you know, a liberal is going to point to the 1990s and, and, and how conservatives kind of started to go after Bill Clinton and, and made politics more personal. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that, like, like the Monica Lewinsky thing, uh, you know, where we, we kind of started to uh, look at how, how Republicans uh, became uh, very much concerned with nationalizing, you know, congressional elections. It used to be that congressional elections were about what's happening in your district. Now we're going to nationalize everything. Uh, and, that, and that kind of started a trend of everything all over America is about kind of national trends. You know, I mean, when I was growing up, somebody running for Congress from the 23rd District of California did not have to have a, a, a strong opinion about Florida mask mandates uh, or Biden pulling out of Afghanistan. Right? Nowadays, we have nationalized everything. So everything is amplified, right? Um, and, and so I think some people might kind of start to say, well, that, that kind of nationalization really began in the 90s. Um, I, I would tell you that, that I think that what's happened is that um, as a teacher, I think that we, we have created a generation of, of Americans who don't understand that what unites us is infinitely stronger than what divides us. And, and I think that, you know, being an American is not a matter of blood or skin color or religion. Being American is a matter of the heart and of the mind. Um, and I think that we have simply forgotten that when you, you read the, 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 the preamble, it says we the people, um, the one. Uh, when you talk about uh, the old national motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. Uh, when you look at the, the, the word constitution, you always think of the constitution as a noun, right? It's this piece of paper, it's, it's the constitution, it's all the laws. But don't forget, Jack, to constitute something also is a verb, right? We're constituting, we're creating a nation. Uh, and I think that when you have cable news, and I think that when you start to have politics as identity, what you begin to do is you begin to put focus on the differences, right? You start to focus on the pluribus, not the unum. Uh, and, and, I, and I think that when you, when you ask people, like I ask this to my students all the time, what makes an American American? Like it's not skin color, it ain't class. Well, what is it? I mean, you go to China or Japan or other places, they'll tell you, oh, well, we speak a common language or, you know, we have a common ethnicity. It's not that in America. So what is it? And so when you have a whole generation that doesn't understand what makes an American an American, uh, when they have never read the speeches of Lincoln that talks about appealing to the better angels of our nature or the mystic chords of memory uh, or, or talking about FDR and the idea that you know, Americans don't think of themselves as members of groups, right? Because we're Americans first. If you haven't been exposed to that, Jack, 
if you haven't read the same documents and learned the same history, you're going to simply focus on what's balkanized and separate. And, and, and that's what I've seen a lot of young people. We're so focused on our differences that we don't realize that they're much smaller than what you know, they really are. I mean, you want to know how, how, how similar we are. Look at Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and then compare them to Kim Jong-un or go compare them to President Xi in China or Vladimir Putin. They're a hell of a lot closer together than we are with those maniacs. And yet we act as if we're bitter enemies with one another. It, it's demoralizing. And I know I'm talking a lot. I'm sorry. The other thing I would say, though, is when I was growing up, when I was younger, how did you win elections, Jack? How did you win elections? You, you know, the, the football game was, was between the 45-yard lines, right? A lot of football analogies in this podcast, right? And there are these people between the 45 or the 43-yard lines who will vote either way, and you rush to the middle and you convince them, hey, my vision for America is better. My policies are better for you. It's better for the nation. It's better for your area, for your family, whatever. Now, and I, and I, and I think Trump, you know, Trump and also the left has done this as well. We now say, you know what? I'm not even going to try and go to the middle. I'm going to find, I'm going to really energize and I'm really going to activate and really polarize all these people way out here to the right or way out here to the left. And I'm going to tell them that the other side hates them. And I'm going to tell them that if the other side gets elected, their way of life is going to be over, that America is going to be over and that they're deplorable and they hate you. And you damn well better turn out to the election booth, otherwise your life is over. They're going to take away your guns. They're going to take away your religion, right? They're going to end America as we know it. So get your ass to the voting booth now. That way of convincing people, man, once they win, and this is why, you wonder why people won't admit that they've lost an election because they feel like it's an existential threat to their lives. Instead of saying, oh man, I lost an election. There'll be another one in two years. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. No, that makes perfect sense. What, what caused that to become the strategy or the way of radicalizing? When did people start buying into that way of thinking where people will just ridiculously slander the other side so much to the point where it's like, oh, awesome, I'm on this side. It's like that Dr. Seuss book, uh, with, and that's pretty much the reading level I'm at. So you can continue talking as much as you want. When that's where I'm at. Um, and yeah. it's like the one that salesman, he sells there's like the sneeches and some of the sneeches have stars and some of them don't have stars and he sells stars to the ones that don't have stars and he sells star removals to the ones that don't have stars to the point where no one can tell who is who to begin with. Yeah. But where, yeah. when did it become thinking like the sneeches and Dr. Seuss and convincing, Oh, they're there. They have no star or we have a star. Well, I, I, I think, you know, I, when it comes to the kind of political landscape of kind of the left and the right in this country, I think that conservatives about five years ago realized that when you look at the kind of racial and class blocks of who votes Republican, who votes Democrat, they looked at the Republican blocks and decided, you know, you know, I think a lot of them thought, well, you know, the blocks that vote for Democrats are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. We're not going to do that. We're just going to have to get more intensive with the blocks that we have. Right. And, and I think that that was, and so for instance, and again, I, you know, I, I don't know how politically you want to go. I'm kind of a, a kind of a middle of the road, boring, you know, Republican, right? Like I'm like a, I'm a guy who likes Mitt Romney and John McCain. Right. So, you know, so, and so I think a lot of people in, 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 in kind of the Republican party would say, Jeremy, that's fine, but you're, those guys lost, right? They lost by trying to go to the middle, by trying to convince people. And, and, and that's why they, they lost. I mean, if you think about it, Jack, out of the last nine presidential elections, do you know how many times a Republican has won the popular vote? Like none. 
one time, 2004, and it was barely done by George W. Bush. And I think people looked at, at Donald Trump who said, you know what, I'm gonna get people involved in politics who haven't been involved before. I'm gonna really activate my base. And they see that in 2016, he won. I mean, even though he lost the popular vote by 3 million votes to Hillary Clinton, I think that appeal uh, really became uh, kind of, uh, you know, kind of more energized to, to people who say, well, you know, we're, we're just never going to convince the other side. Um, and, and which is interesting because in 2020, a lot of the people who, a lot of Republicans thought they would never vote for Republicans actually had historic highs. Uh, African-American men, yeah, they voted for Biden, but you had a bigger percentage voting for Trump than, than had voted for a Republican since the 1960s. Same with, with, with Latinos and Latinas. Um, which was really interesting, giving you know some of his, his statements and policies about immigration. Um, oh, yeah. But he actually did he did quite well uh, with, with those groups. Uh, and, and so you know I, I think that that we, we live in this kind of highly politicized time where kind of populism has gripped both parties. You know, one of the things that I think most people don't realize is people think of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders as opposites. They are not. They actually have a very similar narrative about America which is, hey, the little guy is getting screwed. The little guy doesn't have control of their lives. Now, they blame different people, right? Donald Trump would blame China and illegal immigration and the elites, right, and the big media. And Bernie Sanders would blame the billionaires and, 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 and the wealthy, right? And, 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 and they have different solutions, right? Donald Trump would say, let's, let's build a wall. Let's have America first. Let's not get involved in these silly wars. And, and, and Bernie Sanders would say the solution is, 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 is to tax more and to have more government services and to end income inequality. So they have different, you know, they blame different people and they have different solutions. But the basic populist message of you're the little guy in this country and you're getting screwed over and I'm the solution. It's the same basic narrative. Yeah. I've never thought of it that way, but you're right. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, when did it become so nasty? When did it, if, when can we get somebody in office? Do you think it's ever possible we're going to get somebody that's just like, Hey, like this is all bullshit. Like I think that, some things that, you know, Bernie says are right, I think, you know, and then I think that a lot of things that Trump says are right. When are we, are we ever going to get somebody that's like, hey, like, this is all bullshit? Man, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm, 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 I'll be honest, I am more, I, I worry more about uh, just the kind of constitutional system of our country now than I ever have. Um, I, I do worry about, I mean, what worries me is when you have an outcome of an election and, and the people who lose just literally don't, don't believe it anymore, uh, that we have so little faith in our institutions to do the right thing. Um, I, I, you know, it used to be that you had your elections and then the, the, the losers would say, okay, well, I'll get you next time. And the winners would say, but let me bring you into the fold. You didn't vote for me, but, but you know, I'm listening to you. I hear you. And let's, let's govern with you in mind. And I think, as I said before, if you believe that the other side literally wants to do harm to you or end your way of life, you're never going to admit you lost, no. right? It takes every election and makes it infinitely more important. I mean, that's one of the things that bugs the crap out of me is when you hear people say, this is the most important election of our lives. Well, if it's the most important election of our lives, then America is in a real bad spot, right? If we are no better than just the next election... Uh, then the social fabric and the constitutional structure of our nation is in real hard times, if that's the case. So, um, I mean, this has been slow going, um, but, but again, 
I, I'm a romantic about this country and, and I really do believe that if people would learn how to, I mean, let me make this point, Jack, this is really important. We say that we listen to other people. We, we say that we listen to people who don't agree with us, but we really don't. Like, I mean, like if you think about it, it takes a lot, like a lot of work to really consider what somebody who you disagree with is saying and to get to a point where you say, you know what? I don't necessarily agree, but I, I totally understand how you can come to that without sinister motives. And that last step is the important part, right? To say, right. okay, I, I, you know, I get why you would want to build a wall. You're not, you're, you're not a, an awful racist. Uh, I get why you would want to have a more open border and let people from third world countries come in, um, especially for humanitarian reasons. You're not trying to ruin our economy. You know what I mean? To say, I get why you're saying that. Because I would tell you, Jack, 95% of the people think what they think for a good reason, that if you actually listened, you would get it. And, and, and the same thing is true of kind of this really bad habit we have of looking at the past and saying, oh, well, it, those people in the past were just pure, unadulterated evil. They don't understand what I understand, and therefore I don't have any veneration for them. And I would say, you have no idea what it was like to live in another part of the world in another time, and the millions of things that were different, the language, the morality, the relationships, the gender, the politics, the religious views, all of it, you have no idea what goes into making somebody else's life so qualitatively different then. It would take a an amazing amount of work and reading to appreciate that. It's much easier just to act like we're better than any generation that's ever come and to smugly look back and say, well, they don't agree with what, you know, I don't agree with what they did, therefore, I have no veneration yeah. and no respect. Their point's invalid because they're old yeah. and they didn't know. Yeah. So and you were, things that we don't agree with. And you were saying you romanticize this country, and I do too. I really love America a lot. But when did when when did not liking America, when did not liking America become cool or liking America become not cool? And why did I feel like that's not even just America? When did liking things stop being cool? Because I, I feel like a lot of kids. Like oh, they're man. too cool, too cool for school, man. They think like, that's exactly right. Cool. Giving a shit isn't cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've said this for a while. Is it like, you know when it happened, Jack? It's when cynicism became synonymous with wisdom. Let me say that again. When cynicism became synonymous with wisdom, where, you know, kind of the, the kid who was cool was the kid who didn't really believe in it. Right. The kid who's, who didn't believe in Jesus Christ, who didn't believe in George Washington, who doesn't want to get married, uh, who doesn't want to join, you know, IBM or Apple or the Washington Post. Uh, the kid who's kind of who kind of rises above it all, who doesn't give a crap about anybody or anything. At some point, that became kind of that kind of hipster, hipster detached. I don't give a crap cynic. Um, you're right. You are sure that at some point that became kind of the default ideal. And I think that, you know, what happens is we like to make fun of the kid who's really passionate, right? We like to make fun of the kid who really believes in something or who's the big fan or the, or the person, you know, who reads, you know, these Harry Potter books and logs them around. And we make fun of those kids. And at the end of the day, well, those kids the are nerds. Who, yeah. Yeah. We oh, other nerds, you know, or, or, or whatever, but, but not caring is, is it, it it's a one-way path to misery. Um, you know, that's fine when you're 15 and 16, you think it's cool not to give a crap about anything. But when you're 25 or 35 or 45, there's nothing sexy or funny or interesting about that. Um, 
let me let me describe something for you that it's hard for me to explain but so i've been teaching jack for 24 years right and there are moments that happen in a teacher's life that are sometimes scattered throughout decades and maybe they only happen once a year maybe they only happen once every two years but there's the occasional moment jack where you're talking about something in a classroom maybe an idea maybe a founding father maybe a, a philosopher or a novel or a conversation that you've had and everybody in the classroom is really dialed into the moment like all the cosmic tumblers have clicked into place and the kids are listening not because they're going to be tested not because it's about a gpa they're listening because they realize that there's something we're talking about that is essential for their lives that they all of a sudden like sometimes you'll say something and you'll see this look that come across a kid's eyes and you realize holy crap, the universe just got a little bit bigger for that person. And I'm telling you right now, you don't have to go to Disneyland. You don't have to go to Hollywood. The magic happens in the classroom every day. And I, that's why it's hard for me to be a cynic is when a kid all of a sudden realizes, wow, I've been looking at one thing my whole life the wrong way, or I didn't understand the enormity of life. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't realize that there were these mighty emotions to feel. I didn't realize there were these big thoughts to think. I didn't realize that books have possibilities that, that you know, I, essentially, you know, I had no idea that, that I've been standing on a speck of sand and yet there's a, a humongous boulder over there, right? I didn't realize this. And all of a sudden you see a kid who makes that connection, Jack. It's the sweetest thing in the world. And it's hard for anybody to be a cynic when you've experienced that metamorphosis of the mind and of the spirit at that moment. Absolutely. And I think I read Matthew McConaughey's book and he talked a lot about frequencies. And I think if I, I just wish everybody, we could all get on the same frequencies, but not even that. I think just finding your own frequency and kind of going off that and trusting your heart and your balls and knowing like where, knowing that this is important. And so do you see yourself as more of a writer or more of a teacher, savior of America? How do you see yourself, you know, if you want to write down an application? Yeah, no, I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher who writes. Um, I, I would like to have, I mean, I feel like uh, at the end of the day, Jack, I think the greatest feeling in the world is being in a place, standing in the place where you feel like you're meant to stand. And, you know, at 10 o'clock every day, I'm not looking outside the window. I'm not looking at my clock. I'm not wondering what if I'm not imagining a different life where I made different decisions. Uh, I, I'm fairly certain. And this is what I mean by my faith. I'm fairly certain that I'm doing with myself what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and, and you know, maybe we can have another podcast today, but I, I've had some you know, almost spiritual experiences when I was younger. that really showed me you're supposed to be in the classroom, dude. Like this is where you're supposed to be. This is where you're going to get your meaning and your purpose. Uh, and, and it's been true every day of my life. Now, that being said, I do feel like I have worked so hard on my writing for 20 years. You talked about your hustle. I have been working for decades to try and become a truly great writer. Um, and when you're not famous, when you're just a high school teacher, I won't even tell you how hard it is to be published, how, how hard it is to get an agent how hard it is for an agent to land a big publisher and then how hard it is to promote a book. I mean, all of those things took me years and years and years to find. And so, I mean, if you told me when I was 25 and started writing, Hey, Jeremy, you know, you're going to have an Amazon bestselling book 
and you're going to be published by one of the biggest publishers in the country, and you're going to be published in the LA Times and the Washington Post and Newsweek. Um, I, I would have I would have been thrilled. And yet, I'll tell you, I, I, I do wish that the book had had gone even bigger. I do wish more people would read it. I do hope that it's the kind of thing that takes a while to pick up steam. But I, I do believe it's the most important conversation that we can have in our civilization that we've hollowed out a generation and that not only are their lives on the line, but our way of life, our civilization is on the line. And if you can find a more important book than that, that's fine. And I get that I'm not a celebrity and I get that I'm not Matthew McConaughey, right? I get that I'm not Barack Obama, but damn it, I'm telling you, I love, I love this country and I have so much potent belief in what the fecundity of freedom can do. And so I hope people will read the book so that we can get back on track. And it was a fantastic book. And I think one of the other fascinating points you made was about culture. And I, you know, you go back, you, you, I think, and I listened to Quentin Tarantino when he, when Rogan interviewed him, I know Rogan, you know, too soon, man. But uh, when he was interviewed by Joe Rogan, he was talking about like, what, look at the culture and the, you know, environment that some of these films came out in. So in the eighties, there's a lot of uh, like corporate greed and Reaganomics yeah. and things like that. So you have all these action blockbusters over the top. And then 90s gets a little more gritty and a little more violent. And then, but now I can, I've had this discussion multiple times where I can, I think the last like actually funny movie came out in 2014 because now movie, there's no, there's nothing funny anymore. Like nobody there. I haven't seen a funny movie since I think. So the interview and then, uh, Jump Street, 22 Jump Street in 2014. Those are the last two, like, actually movies that made me laugh out loud. Yeah. yeah. I can't think of a funny movie after that. There's it, no... Oh, my God. It is so funny that you're, you talk about this because... And, again, I'm going to sound like a massive boomer here, but I'm just going to... And I'm not a boomer, by the way. I'm a, no, I'm no, not a boomer. I'm, yeah, I'm way too young uh, for this. Um, but, uh, but I'll tell you that you are so right, and I'm so glad that you see this, Jack, that movies like like i think about the fact that like you know we talk about what are the things that inspire a young person to become who they eventually become right who gives them who gives a young person a, a, an image of what you can be when you really embrace grit and grind and and aspiration you know when we kind of i don't know if you ever studied teddy roosevelt every american should study Ted, oh, teddy roosevelt he's He's one of the he's, most frat presidents. He was a fratty he, president. He believed uh, national parks. He was uh, he loved football and rough sports, and he delivered uh, his speech uh, with a bullet in his chest. That's uh, absolutely because exactly exactly the guy gave him he had the, the the paper that kind of he wrapped the paper and put it into his and it saved him. Yeah, but you know he talks about you know Teddy Roosevelt talks about the strenuous life. He says Americans go into the arena. We're not these spectators, you know, yelling. We're not the critics. We're in the, We're the arena. Man in the arena. We're the man in the arena, right? Every, see, every child should know that. And, you know, I think about the kind of the movies that I grew up with that kind of gave you a sense of, well, what the hell do you want to do in the arena? What do you want to do there? Like, it's not even a question. You go to the arena, you stake your claim, you try your best, you dream big, you hope hard, you climb high, and either you get knocked off the mountain or you don't, but damn it, you try it. You don't sit in your room all day scrolling mindlessly, talking about how awful society is. Um, sorry, I'm getting sidetracked. But, but you know, I, I had these movies when I was growing up that, I mean, again, this is a word that modern cynics don't understand, but the word inspiration. I mean, I think I'm, like, like I use the word inspiration. The kids kind of look at me. I'm like, you know, that, that feeling inside your chest when you have a sense where you say, my God, I want to do something big. I want to, you know, and this is, one of the, this is one of the big points of hollowed out 
is the best thing you can do for a young person is give them a model of what adulthood looks like. Like, I want to be like that man. I want to be like that woman. I want to achieve what they achieved. I want to do in the arena what they did, right? And, and, and young people don't have that. You know, we're, we're creating a, a generation untethered to models, right? Because you don't eat together, right? You don't see no. adults. We're cynical about politics. But getting back to the movies, I mean, my favorite movies. What uh, were the movies you grew up with? Yeah. Well, my favorite movie of all time uh, is uh, Field of Dreams. Uh, Classic. With, with Kevin Costner. Um, the end of that movie is transcendent. Uh, and I grew up uh, in, a, in an age where, you know, teachers watch Dead Poets Society, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Dead Poets Society. Of course, the kid stands up on the desk and Robin oh. Williams is teacher. And oh, the, oh my God, the, the bagpipes. Oh, captain, my captain. And he says, thank you, boys. <laughs> thank you. You know, I mean, I, I had that whole movie memorized because, because I believed Jack in the possibility of what a classroom could do for me. You see, this, this is a big generational difference. See, I want people to understand that seeing is believing. I can cuss on a podcast, right? Oh, yeah. Seeing is we're not is we're not Mormons here. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. Seeing is believing is bullshit, right? You got to believe in something before you're able to see it, right? If you don't believe that a class can change your life, if you don't believe that you can achieve, if you don't believe that love is possible, if you don't believe that American can redeem itself, then it doesn't matter what you see. It's never you're never going to see it, right? Because you don't believe that it can be. And Dead Poets Society for me was this I really showed me that you know that 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 you can have a metamorphosis of the soul in the classroom that what we read can literally widen the universe it can literally put a dent in your spirit in a way that nothing else can and and it made me into an educational romantic you know every day you know I used to think to myself am I gonna like and this is as a teacher why you don't want I mean cynical teachers drive me up the wall too by the way Oh, because it's like, well, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you even here? Because you never know all these lazy, you know, all the lazy teachers out there, the cynical teachers, you never know what day, what kid, what you're going to say that might turn it all around for another human being. You never know. It could be a first year teacher in the first day. It could be a last day of a, of a long teaching career, but you don't control as a teacher what a student is going to remember about your class. You absolutely can't control that. And I know that because I've come across a lot of former students who will tell me stories about things I said and did, and I have no memory of it at all. But it reminds me that, dang it, Jeremy, you need to be your best every day because you know, you've literally changed lives saying or doing things that now I don't even remember. But I'm glad that in that moment I was wired in. And I'm sure, by the way, that I've, I've had a lot of bad moments too, by the way. I'm sure that that's happened as well. Uh, which is why you, you want to minimize it. So yeah, I mean, I can't think of the last movie that inspired me, Jack. I, I can't think of the last movie that moved me. They, uh, I can't they feel like content, man. They're not move. They're not film. They're not cinema. It's like even and trust me, I like the uh, the Star Wars and the Marvel, especially the Marvel. Like that. Like I'll watch them, but it's not like it's not real to me. It's just, it's yeah. like another CGI bullshit garbage that just, yeah. it's not a real piece of there. Piece there of have been exceptions though. 2019, the, the, that year, 
had some fantastic movies that were like what? Like what? What did you? Nineteen Seventeen. Oh, uh, Once yeah. Upon a Time in Hollywood. Where? Oh yeah, two, yeah. Those Once are Upon two. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The last forty-five minutes of that was so great. Oh, great. Uh, brilliant. I love the last for Nineteen Seventeen. Um, I, I agree. Uh, but notice didn't win the Oscar. You know yeah. all the. All the Oscars go to all these, you know, America's awful. And, and you know, Bill Maher did this great uh, stand-up routine last year where he's like, you know, who wants to go to the movies? It's all about how, you know, people are poor and people are bigoted and America's bad and life yeah. is evil. And he's like, who wants, who wants to, who wants to do that? And like, and I, and I look at the Oscars that were nominated today. I didn't really, I mean, I used to love the Oscars, love them. I don't even watch them anymore because it, it, it's all so negative. And I know it's artistic, but it's, let me put it this way. It's artistic, but it's not edifying, right? What, what do you mean by that? Edification is kind of a word that is kind of like a, a kind of spiritual guidance. Uh, if it's edifying, it's like, it's good for the soul, right? It's, mm. it's good for the spirit. It's kind of give you a nourishment of like, oh, this, this, this is what life can be. This is what, it answers a question for you. You know, this is what fatherhood is. This is what friendship is about. Like, so for instance, you know, I love Dead Poets Society because it inspired me as a teacher, right? I loved uh, Field of Dreams because it inspired me as a father. Um, you know, I love uh, Forrest Gump because it inspired me as an American. Oh, fantastic. You, you know what I mean? Movies, yeah. uh, I don't know if you've ever... I don't like, know if you've ever... What about, well, what about even um, a lot of those Spielberg movies, E.T., Oh, and uh, but, they're just, it's all very Jurassic Park. It's all so inspiring. And it just, yeah. and even, um, even Saving Private Ryan is just, that'll get any, anybody born in America or just anybody patriotic, make it flare up that patriotic bone in your body. It's funny you say that today. We started my unit on World War One in my history class. And I, I said, to the kids, you know, and I said to the kids, I said, so. I said, a lot of you guys know a lot more about World War II than World War I because you've all seen World War II movies. And then I said, well, hold on a minute. And so I said, how many of you guys have seen Saving Private Ryan? I have like 40 kids in the class. Two. I said, how many of you guys have ever seen Schindler's List? One. How what? Many of you guys have, yeah, they, they just don't watch it. Uh, how many of you guys have watched Band of Brothers? Jack, you better see, you've seen Band of Brothers before. No, I know. I got HBO Max, so I'm going to watch oh, it. Oh, you have to. And you, you email me and say, Jeremy, that was extraordinary. Executive uh, produced by Tom Hanks. I know yes, all about it. Yeah, oh, yeah. But I did watch. Okay, I did read. I read um, Flags of Our Fathers, and then I oh. did watch uh, a bit of the Pacific miniseries that HBO did. So kind yeah, of in that same vein. Yeah, the Pacific was not even. Uh, it was okay. But really? Band of, yeah, Band of Brothers is one of the greatest things. I mean, it might be the best thing HBO has ever done. It's a heck of a lot. That's a big, okay. I know. Time out. That's a big time statement to make. Okay. Well, okay. There's only one thing, like my favorite show ever of the last 15 years. Like I think season one, True Detective is. That's a great take. Okay. Right. I mean, that is, that was right there. Um, Whoever wrote that show has an IQ of about 180. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic. fantastic uh, the acting the writing i mean mcconaughey was just you know and woody harrelson amazing mcconaughey and woody harrelson was unbelievable 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 um but i'll tell you you go watch band of brothers 
in the, 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 one, the first one in Europe. And you tell me if there's anything better. Uh, it's a hell of a lot better than Euphoria. That's for sure. I tried that. <laughs> tried yeah, that but, for about 20 minutes. Jeremy, but Jeremy, that. think of all the stuff that HBO's done. And to say that is, it's not bananas, but it's bananas. Mm. Uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Sopranos, The it's Wire. Like, come on. Great stuff. Great stuff. Great stuff. I would still put it a little bit below Band of Brothers. Now, I haven't watched The Wire. I know I need to as a teacher. I need to watch The Wire. Um, and, and, and I'm actually not a huge Larry David fan, so curb your enthusiasm. Uh, really? And you're right. Yeah, no, I just, I don't know. It's kind of, just kind of the guy who's rude to people kind of makes me uncomfortable. You know what I mean? I don't really laugh at it. My daughter's the same way. She doesn't like, you know, and I all never right. particularly well, like, some I didn't of it's watch... uncomfortable. I, all right, that's a fair take because some right. of it is kind of cringy, but I think my uh my english professor put it this way because i was asking him about it because he was a comedy fan it's like the seasons where larry is like over the top rude to people are not that funny but the seasons where it's just things happening to him and him yeah. making things worse for himself that's usually when they're at their best like did, did you like seinfeld like did, did you watch i've watched it a little bit on netflix i think some of it's funny yeah, I mean, I was never a huge Seinfeld guy. And like, you know, I would say comedies. Uh, you were talking about comedies for movies. I don't know a lot of comedies for TV anymore. I mean, like, I, no. I don't, I, you know, like I've tried to watch Shit's Creek. Don't get it. I, I don't, I don't get why it's funny. Uh, I know like my neighbors. No, like, I can't think of one right now besides South Park. That's the only, and that's been on, and The Simpsons is dead, but South Park has still been on for the season yeah. 25 right now. But it's there's nothing, man. There's nothing. All the humor has shifted, like you're talking about. It's all TikTok and it's all super fast, quick hitters of yeah. people being dumb or stupid or both. Yeah. And again, comedy, I think it takes almost a lot more intelligence than drama because you have, to build, you have to build up to it. It has to be, you know, there has to be kind of a knee jerk reaction to it, but also a deeper layer. Um, and I think people don't have the patience for it. And I think that, again, that's another great point. Yeah, and I think that what's what's really weird in our culture, you talk about culture, you know, think about what, think about power. We have like this obsession with power. We keep talking about power, power, power in America. And when I was growing up, it was very clear to me, you have power through character, right? Through intelligence, through knowledge, through education, through virtue, through loyalty, that gives you power, right? Is, is, is your personal qualities. But we've tweaked that nowadays so that, you have power if you're offended, right? Oh, I'm offended by what you've said. And now I have power over you. And now you're on the defense, right? The moment you're offended by somebody, you're in the offense. Well, what does it take to be offended? It doesn't take any work. It doesn't take any education. It just takes a really, you know, a really sensitive sensibility. And that's it. Now, it's okay to be offended. I mean, I'm offended sometimes. That's fine. But I think young people are kind of hip to that. They understand that, oh, I can have power if I'm offended by something you said which puts the power dynamic, it completely changes about what creates power. I can take, spin zone the situation to where I hold all the leverage. Exactly. And I don't really have to, I don't have to achieve anything to have the power now. Um, and, and I think that in like, that's why a lot of comedians won't go to colleges anymore. Is no. They used to have the power to make people laugh. But when young people say, well, I want to take that power from you and, 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 and wrap it in the membrane of being offended, it ruins comedy, right? Because the people who should have the power to make people laugh are the comedians and they don't have it anymore. So that's, I mean, that's, that's one of the kind of cultural byproducts of, of an era of offense all the time, right? I mean, and that's the thing about feelings, right, Jack, is feelings are never wrong. Like you can't tell somebody, if you say, well, I feel like you're being rude, 
it doesn't really matter what you objectively said or did. It's how they feel. And you can't tell them their feelings are wrong. I mean, we can't even find a host for the Oscars, right? Because, you know, people look up something somebody said 15 years ago and, 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 and then they have to do this, you know, apology. And, and, and that's, you know, if you want to talk about kind of a, a broken culture, there you are. That's why you don't have comedy. Um, it's my view. No, you're right. It stinks. And but you said feelings can never be wrong. I got told my feelings are wrong a hundred times growing up. My, they were I like you shouldn't be upset. Like you're. My, I remember one. I will never forget this. It was you know in eighth grade. So I was never really. I'm, I'm not really really like a great great athlete. I'm tall and I'm kind of stocky, so I, it, I was all right. But I wasn't athletic, and I, I was really upset I wasn't getting as much playing time as I w- wanted to in eighth grade, you know, pretty classic scenario. And I was bitching to my dad about it and, you know, talking to us and he turns on the radio and he looks at me and he says, like, I work every day. I get up at seven in the morning or six in the morning and I go into work every day and I get pick you up from football practice at fucking five o'clock or whatever. And I want to, you think I want to hear about you bitch about complain and complain about your playing time. Like, no, like either fucking figure it out or don't complain. Well, uh, I think we don't, you know what? It's a great uh, article or a video I watched. It was like, we don't kids, my, they don't hear no enough. You need to be told no all the time. No, no, I, I I agree. I I think the power of no uh, is something that, 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 and I, I, I struggle with this as, as a parent, because as a parent, you say no, then you have to do more parenting, right? Then you have to have the fight. Yeah. Then you have to keep explaining it. Yes, ends thing that makes it easy for us, right? Um, and so, no, I, I completely agree. And I know that I absolutely say yes to my, my children way too much. But about feelings, I think, I, think, I think a parent or a teacher can say, well, you're not justified to feel that way. But that's different than saying that you don't feel that way. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like my, my son gets, gets mad all the time if I don't get him what he wants. How old is your son? Say, He's 11 uh, and he's so. you know, a, little bit, a little bit of a turd. Uh, again, I love him more than life itself. But, you know, his feelings, I think, are unjustified all the time, how mad he gets about things. But they are still his feelings. I mean, like right. I can't tell you that's not how he feels. I think they're unjustified and I think he needs to learn how to control them better. Um, but, but, I, but I do think that when we, you know, if you think about it, 500 years ago, we had the age of faith, right? Faith was the ultimate arbiter of truth. Then we had the enlightenment in the age of reason and reason and rationality was the ultimate arbiter of what is true. Well, when you take away faith and you take away reason, all you have left is kind of will, right? Which is a very postmodern idea. I mean, this is kind of Nietzsche. There is no truth. uh, There's just will. Uh, and, and, And when all you have left is will, it's really hard to give a sense of what is or what ought to be. Um, And again, that's a separate conversation we can have sometime, but I do think when you live in a universe when there is no right and wrong, when you live in a universe where you believe that you decide what's the highest good, what's true, when you get to decide what's moral or immoral, when you don't believe in objective reality, uh, your, your, your value system is going to get very funky very fast. Um, but it's also why, I mean, if you don't believe that there's ultimate truth, if you don't believe there's ultimate uh, morality, if you don't believe in an objective virtue, then you can never be told that you're wrong right? A person just say, well, that's how I feel. It's what I think is right and wrong. And that's why it's, you know, like for the last 20 years, it's all about, you know, don't judge, just be very tolerant. Don't judge. And while I, I deeply believe in empathy and I deeply believe in compassion, I think that's different than saying I'm so sympathetic and so compassionate 
that I don't care what you do at all. I think that's not good, right? That's I think terrible. That, that's terrible, right? And, and so when people say don't judge, it's like, well, excuse me, um, I am going to judge. That's what makes us human beings, right? Animals don't judge. Men and women judge. We have a sense of what, what ought to be and what ought not to be. And if we don't instill that in young people, like this is right, this is wrong, and there's a standard and either you live up to it or you don't live up to it. If you don't live in that universe, Jack, then what you've done is you've created a universe where kids can say, well, I don't believe in any of your standards anymore. I create my own right and wrong. As Nietzsche said, I'm beyond good and evil. And who are you to judge me, right? And when you do that, it's really hard for an adult to kind of stand up and have any authority, right? Books don't make any sense. Art doesn't make any sense. Parents don't make any sense because the children are the arbiters of right and wrong. There's nothing to aspire to, right? How did all that leverage shift though? Because it's well, like writing all our laws, the majority of all of, you know, pretty much every civilization's laws up to this point was Judeo-Christian values. And yeah. it, when did that shift to becoming, oh, like, because I, I understand that there's some laws based on morality and morality yeah. generally, as far as legally was based on the Bible. And especially, and, I've, and not everybody practices or has the same standards of morality. However, there has to be a limit to that somewhere. Yeah, I think what happened somewhere along the way, uh, and I would argue that you kind of have the counterculture of the 1960s, um, you really begin, you know, like what I would say is that, what I would say is that, you know, a, a nation has both a software and a hardware, right? To use a computer analogy, the software of a nation is kind of its belief system, right? It's apps, what are you running? Like, what are you trying to do? What do you believe in? Your hardware is kind of what is the actual infrastructure that's running those apps, right? And I would tell you that our national software has been this kind of uh, latent moral relativism, uh, even in nihilism, where we say there are no objective standards, it's, it's, it's up to the individual. And that's why I keep saying that we live in this radically individualistic time where we believe, like, like in the book, I talk about religion. And, and, and one of the reasons why young people don't like religion is because religion says, look, you don't get to decide right and wrong, right? It's beyond you, right? It's, it's, it's in the commandments and it's in the gospels. It's in, it's in the Old Testament, right? The, you know, God decides right and wrong. And, and a lot of young people don't like religion because it takes power out of their hands, right? And they, they want to decide what's right and wrong. And, and they would argue that the worst thing to be is not a, a bad person. It's to be judgmental of other people. That's what's really bad is to judge other people. And so it's this really weird universe where our national software is a moral relativism, a radical individualism, almost a nihilism, where we don't believe in anything other than ourselves, where we don't try to live up to standards. We invent standards and then talk about how great we are, right? So that's our national software. And then Jack, what about our national hardware? How do we run our lives? Dude, we're on our phones nine or 10 hours a day. We eat processed foods. We live on energy drinks. We have to pop pills in order to sleep. We don't sleep. I don't know if you know this, the average American sleeps in an hour and a half less today than they did in the 1940s. Our concentration sucks. We can't read books, right? We, we're constantly fidgeting with our, our technology. We don't exercise. We're overweight. Um, you know, we, we, the way that we live our lives, our hardware is so fundamentally broken, my friend. And so our national hardware and our software is completely broken and that, again, no wonder we live in a hollowed out time does that, i don't know if that made any sense no that time. makes a lot of a scary amount of sense but is the hollowing out reversible how and if so how yeah first of all i just want to be very clear there's not an easy answer here 
right? And it's one of the things that I've said in all my interviews in the last six months is anybody who's looking for a panacea or an easy solution is barking up the wrong tree. There are a few things we got to do, Jack. Number one, I need to look in the mirror and we adults have got to start adulting again. We have got to put ourselves in the physical. Start whooping ass. Yeah, well, we, yeah, we have to put ourselves in the spaces of young people. We have to say, look, there is right, there is wrong, and you're not living up to it, and here are the consequences. Young people want the driver's license. The, the, the young people, Jack, want the car keys, but they don't want the driver's license, right? And we have got to say, you get the car keys, but you got to know, the, you got to have the license first. You want to have the liberty, but you have to learn how to use your liberty correctly before I give it to you. Right. And we have to model that. We have to tell them that. Right. We need to stop indulging children and telling them that they're the center of the universe. Um, I think we also, as a uh, <laughs> that's water or milk, um, water. It, I'm not just drinking milk. Jug. <laughs> I'll say that's that's well done. I'm a big whole milk guy. OK. OK. As, as long as it's pasteurized, I guess. I don't know. But, um, you know, and I'll tell you, like as a political science teacher, the other thing we have to do is we have got to let young people know that it is OK to love your country and to also admit at the same time that the country isn't perfect. Like you, just because you're patriotic, I think there's this thing where you, if you, if you love America, somehow people think that you're saying that the atrocities of the past didn't happen or that we haven't failed to live up to it. No, you can be thoughtfully patriotic. You can be patriotic and say, look, I'm patriotic, not because I'm denying all the bad things that happened, but because we corrected the bad things that happened, right? So like, you know, when people say, well, what's the real America? You know, you have this whole 1619 project where the, the famous sentence is, well, you know, racism is in America's DNA. No, redemption is in America's DNA, right? That, that, that I'm patriotic, not because of what we did, right? The real America is not slavery. It's the 13th Amendment and the Civil War and the, and the Emancipation Proclamation. The real America is not the KKK, and segregation, the real America is Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. That's the real, that's the America I feel good about. You see, to me, that's what patriotism is. It's not, in fact, you have to acknowledge what we've done. You have to acknowledge what, you know, Thomas, you know, Thomas Jefferson, you know, had slaves, and so did Washington, and so did Marshall, and so did Madison. Acknowledge it, right? That's not why I feel good about America. I feel good about America because of the fact that we actually had to move the ball of justice up the mountain and it wasn't easy. And yet we did it anyhow. We did it. We did it. And by the way, I mean, think about it this way. Imagine if you didn't know, Jack, you were going to be white or black. Okay. You didn't know if you were going to be richer, poor, gay or straight, a southerner or a northerner, right? Imagine you don't know how you're going to be born, right? When would you want to be born in America? What era, if you didn't know, what America would you want to be in? Which what, what time period? Bro, probably now. Right, exactly, exactly. And by the way, who created the now? Well, the people who came before you, who worked and sacrificed to create this amazing civilization we have. And, and how do we say thank you for this civilization? Oh, well, we decide to sit during the national anthem and we're not gonna say the Pledge of Allegiance and we're gonna talk about how crappy America is. See, to me, <laughs> You know, like we, we have this amazing civilization that other people who we don't even know their names built for us. And what do we do? We look back and crap we just on. shit all over them. We, yeah, we, uh, I mean, forget you because, you know, you have views that I don't like. Um, we are all, you know, 100 years from now, people are going to be like, what the hell did you do to your environment, guys? 
uh, why were you eating meat like that? Um, you know, why, why were you doing that to the, to the ground? Uh, why were you treating animals like that? I mean, a hundred years from now, we're not going to look so good. You know, we're going to no, look we're gonna bad. Look terrible. We're gonna I'm going to look awful. <laughs> Jack, you look, you look great now though, man. So <laughs> it, it, it's all good. Enjoy your youth. But you know what I mean? Like, like we, we all exist in the stream of history. None of us are above it, right? None of us are omniscient, right? And that's what I want young people to understand is if you understand what America is supposed to be, you can appreciate out, appreciate out, appreciate it and be patriotic about it without denying what we had to do to correct what came before. And that's, I would say that's the last thing we need to do. So, you know, adults need to be back in the spaces of, a, of young people. We need to give kids licenses before we give them keys. And it's okay to be patriotic without saying that the country is perfect. That's what I would say. I think a, a perfect saying I've, I've heard is that like we are the home team and your home team can suck. Your home team can be the Cleveland Browns, Detroit Lions. But if you're not rooting for the home team, get the hell out of the stadium. Like yeah, we I- are the home team. It's our team. We create the culture that roots for the team. Like, and if you, like I said, you know, get the hell out of the stadium if you don't like the team. Well, and I, I like the analogy that at the end of the day, we're in control, right? I mean, this is a, I mean, this is the beauty of a democratic society. The people, It's a fan-owned organization. It's a fan, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's a fan-owned organization, right? If at the end of the day, it's our country. And if we don't, and we can take the mantle, right? We are in charge of the culture. We're in charge of our leaders. Uh, you know, we have the power uh, and the agency to, to take it wherever we want to take it. Um, and that's why, you know, let's not be fatalistic, man. The ancient Greeks were fatalists. Americans, no, we believe in agency. We believe in autonomy. We believe that we are the makers of our own lives and our own destiny. And dang it, we're the country of Washington and Teddy Roosevelt and Martin Luther King and Arthur Ashe. That's who we are. We're the people who go to the moon. We're the ones who, who fight for freedom. We, that's our country. We're the ones who can improve upon what we've done in the past. We were uh, 13 basically Cooper Cups, 13 scrawny colonies <laughs> like, that nobody believed in. And we became the most buff, pumped up country in the world. And that's yeah. awesome. It and is undefeated awesome. in world wars. Up to this point. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> I don't, you know, there's some other wars. I don't know if Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam are, are wars that I would say we, we triumphed in, but world war wise, if, if we, absolutely. But if we two get into two. another one, that's a dynasty. That's three and oh. Yeah. Let's just hope that we don't. Let's hope that we don't. But if we do, it's a dynasty when we okay, win. It's a, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Now, yeah. what, do you, what, do, what about uh, bringing back bullying? I, I sent out a blast, you know, because, you know, I'm all Gen Zers and I have right. a text with a bunch of my guys from high school. And I asked them, uh, you know, this guy who wrote this book about Hollowed Out is coming on the pod. And I, I want to hear some of you, if you guys have any thoughts, you know, text me. And some of them were asking about bringing back bullying specifically. Mm-hmm. And do you think we should bring it back? Because I've heard... Bowling's been on the hot seat for a long time, but like I was made fun of a lot as a kid because I was like really tall and really skinny. And I feel like I ended up okay. Yeah, no. I'm a host of a podcast, but I feel like I ended up okay. Yeah, no, I I would not say bring back bullying um, because I I do think that there is a lot of benefit in, you know, in, in older people saying, look, it's not okay to treat other people like this just because you have the power. I mean, a bully is, bullying is about a power dynamic and, and being able to be cruel because you can be cruel, right? And, 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 and that's the kind of thing that, um, if you're talking about mentoring and teaching and parenting and befriending, I'm glad that this is something we're talking about. And I think that this is progress. Now, 
what I think people are saying about bringing back bullying, I think what they're saying is we do need to allow young people to start to deal with their own problems sometimes though, right? That, that when, yeah, when kids are, are, are fighting, maybe the first step should be let them sort it out. Let them see if they can figure out before the, the adults step in and make sure that nobody gets hurt. See if the kids can deal with it themselves first before we kind of write a policy. I under, and I understand that. I mean, I do understand that point of view, um, you, you know, but, but, you know, I remember, I don't know if you remember at Yale a few years ago, uh, there was a, a big brouhaha about Halloween and uh, somebody didn't like a costumes being. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, it always like, is. There's always some people, Halloween costume. Yeah. Someone was mad about the, about, about a costume and they wanted an official policy. And this really, you know, brilliant, loved professor said, you know what, instead of having the administration make a rule, why don't we just let the kids, let, let them monitor, let, let them kind of sort it out themselves. And, and they, the adults who said that, got shellacked. I mean, they were utterly destroyed. They're like, you're perpetuating all of these awful things. You need to, you, you need to step up. You need to step in. Um, and I think most of Americans kind of looked at that and said, no, his point was a pretty good one. You know, can't we just let young people govern themselves a little bit here? Um, so I, I am sensitive to that, but I will tell you as, 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 as somebody who went to a junior high where, you know, I wasn't treated very well. Right. And, and I would have liked for there to be a little bit more guidance. You were definitely uh, that, way smarter than all those kids. though. Yeah. Well, that doesn't stop you from being bullied. Uh, you know, what stopped me from being bullied was the fact that I was really good basketball player. Right. I was. Just oh, perfect. Absolutely. I mean, that's what did it. You look like yeah. a hooper, honestly. Oh, I, I, well, I, I'm a center, right? And I just stand in the center. I kind of box out. And, uh, you know, I kind of, you know, remember, I'm a, I'm a Californian. So, you know, I'm, I am the land of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? So, you know, that, that, that kind of comes naturally for me. Um, Showtime Lakers. Showtime. I mean, I grew up with the Showtime Lakers. That's why, like, I am so deeply offended when I'm sitting there in my classroom and some kid is wearing a Boston Celtics jersey. Let's I wanted, go, man. I'm like, what are you doing, dude? <laughs> like, do you think, and I, I've said to them before, I probably shouldn't have. I said, do you think that there's anybody sitting in a high school in Boston right now with a Lakers jersey on? No. Absolutely. There's something about Californians. We are the worst fans sometimes about, like, rooting for people, like, not in our own state. Like, like other states get it. It's the home team. We root for the home team. But Californians, for some reason, I mean, I'll get these, you know, I live in the Central Valley of California. I'll get the most arbitrary. I mean, one of my good friends is a Tampa Bay Bucks fan. Like, why? You've lived in Bakersfield your whole life, bruh. What are you doing? Yeah, bruh. Yeah, what you, like, <laughs> what's up with that? You know? What's, uh, what is good with the California stereotypes? I know, have you ever seen Chad and JT? No. no. They are comedians, and they, uh, they've been on Fox a bunch of times, and they've done, like, you know, they've bleached their hair to support the coral getting bleached, and they've, uh, <laughs> you know, things like that. You need to... Yeah. Be, so where does where did this uh, negative California stereotype come from? Well, yeah, I mean, we've had it for a long time. I mean, you remember you had Valley Girls in the 1980s, uh, you know, we, we, because we are, you know, one of the extraordinary things, Jack, about America is unlike European countries where the commercial, political and cultural capitals are the same. Like so, in, you know, in England. London is the capital for all those things, right? It's where they have their commerce, it's where they make their laws, and it's where they have all the plays. The United States is extraordinary. We have different capitals, right? So we have a, we have a, a political capital in D.C., mm. we have a financial capital in, in New York, and we have a cultural capital in Hollywood. And so I think the fact that we have uh, th this cultural capital out here 
really encourages us to always kind of push the envelope a little bit, right? We, you know, you know, understand that, you know, it was not Wall Street that created the internet, right? Um, the Silicon Valley is, is, is not in all of these kind of hierarchical East Coast rich families. No, it, it, was, it was this kind of, you know, acid dropping uh, hippie guy named Steve Jobs out in California that had the- had the ideas right um hollywood uh is obviously out here in california so that, you live that, in entourage well i mean i definitely don't i definitely don't have the lifestyle of uh vincent chase i mean i wish i did sometimes <laughs> um i'm probably more uh, i'm probably are you in more, you strike I'm me more, as an e yeah, you're, no, i think you're more of an e i'm more of an e, e as a teacher uh, yeah i'm more of an e I, I, again i i'd like to be you know you know, I'd like to be Ari, you know, kind of wildly successful <laughs> and, you know, all that. But but I'm probably the kind of, you know, I live a very G-rated life. I've always lived a G-rated life and very loyal to my friends and family. Um, but but you know what I mean? Like, so California has always had that vibe. And we see this in our politics, by the way. We've we've always got to be more than everybody else. Like, we're going we're gonna to be the first state to have 50% renewable energy. We're going to be the first state to have five to 11-year-olds vaccinated. No other state does that. You know, something tells me we're going to have the, the masks longer than everybody else. Um, you know, we're going to be the first state to do this. We always have that sense that we've got to be a little bit more and we got to be first and we got to be more extreme. So that's just kind of the California vibe. And sometimes it's great. And sometimes it's annoying as piss. Have you seen a statistic called the U-Haul index? The U- well, yeah, it, it's, it kind of gives you a sense of like, do people, do people want to live in your state or do they not want to live yeah. in your state? California is number 50. Yeah, nobody wants to be here anymore. Yeah, people are leaving. Why, why is that? What happened? And it's not even like people, people. I mean, Tesla's new facility is in Austin. And then yeah. also all the, they're all moving Texas and Tennessee and Florida and Arizona. Uh, well, um, I, I think even though I, I am a very, very ardent lover of California, I think we have the most beautiful beaches, except for maybe Hawaii. Uh, we have the most beautiful mountains. We have the most beautiful desert. I and mean, we are a beautiful state. There's a reason why we're the greatest population. Uh, but I do think that the politics of this state, and again, I remember I'm kind of a moderate Republican here. So you're getting a little bit of a conservative bent here. I, I do think that like, it's one thing to be progressive, but I think what you see in California is almost a utopian Right. This idea that uh, we can just keep taxing into eternity, um, that it, that it's this, this fiction that if you lower the bar of education and graduate more people, that means people will be more educated. Wrong. It's this fiction, this utopian vision that if we just decriminalize everything and don't arrest people, that you'll have safer streets. Wrong. Right. It's this idea that if, if, if we just let homeless people do what they want to do and then we show them compassion, uh, that that's you know that, that you won't have all of these tent cities um, you know emerging in, in LA and, and San Francisco. And so at the end of the day, California has become very anti-business. You have high taxes. Uh, you have, I mean, to, to give you a good demonstration of how weird things are in LA, you can pay a million dollars for an apartment, and right outside the front of you, you have an embankment of of of, of homeless people in in you know in camps and. And so you have this massive inequality. You have high taxes, high regulations. Nobody wants to run their business here. Uh, you have droughts. You have earthquakes. Uh, nobody can afford a house. Uh, the energy costs are through the roof. I spent $100 filling up my gas tank the other day. Oh. Uh, and, you know, and it's, 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 it's profoundly painful. Um, and so we just have this, 
this, this utopian view uh, that if government grows enough and provides enough services, that, that, that we're going to be this mecca of perfection. And we're just not. Uh, it's just not a pleasant place to live anymore. Um, you know, and that's why so many people want to leave, especially the young. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've obviously this whole time making fantastic points. How does, is it different instilling it as a teacher versus as a father? It, like is, where's the, uh, you know, where the, what are the intricacies of that? Yeah. I mean, it's easier as a teacher, right? Because I, I get to control uh, essentially what I'm saying and what I hold them accountable for. Um, and so as a teacher, all I'm trying to do at the end of the day is I'm trying to expose them to possibilities within themselves that they normally wouldn't get in their ordinary everyday lives. Right. So, you know, one of the things that really hurts me is the extent to which books have been completely displaced by, by screens and social media, you know, we have, you know, I think a lot of young people have these ideals that, you know, like I, I, I should always be happy things or things shouldn't be hard. I mean, that's maybe the biggest one. That's, that, an, that's terrible. Right. That's it, awful. It, and you see that in classes a lot, you know, there's, there's this constant, you know, in education now it's like, well, you know, don't hold anybody accountable. You have to understand that kids come from all of these economic and social hurdles and so you can't really hold them accountable for their behavior uh i mean you can literally tell a teacher to f off and you're supposed to not send them to the dean you're supposed to have a you're supposed to have a kind of a gathering in class where you you have a circle and you discuss well why do you feel that way um you know you have campuses where you know the, you, kids can do drugs and it's a, a, a just a two-day suspension um and, and so just the standards uh, the standards of it as a teacher have just gone so low um that at the end of the day, it's no wonder that kids, you know, when kids realize that they can get away with murder and bad behavior, well, that, that, be, that bad behavior proliferates. When they realize that they can turn in the assignment whenever they want, they're never going to meet uh, a deadline. When they realize they can use their notes on a test, why would they ever study for it? So at the end of the day, you have bad behavior, you have low academic standing, because as the adults, we think that compassion is paving the road towards excellence, and it's not right? Compassion is great, but you're compassionate in order for the students to understand that you care about them so that you can have high standards, right? I mean, what I think a lot of people think now is that teaching is there to be like, you're essentially just a deputized therapist, right? I'm here to make you feel safe and I'm here to make you feel good about yourself. And that's fine. Like, I have no problem with that. Don't make me feel safe. Make me feel unsafe. But but I, I want you to feel safe in the sense that like, you know that if I question you or I get on you, it's because I care about you. But you need to understand that I, I care about you enough that I'm going to call you out when you make a mistake, right? But, you, but nowadays you really can't, you're not really supposed to do that. Students will say that they feel vulnerable or they feel uncomfortable in your class. Uh, I mean, I was in my own father's classroom. My dad called people out all the time. I mean, he would call BS like crazy. Um, Socrates would get kicked out of a high school in about a day, right? Because Socrates cared about truth. He didn't care about feelings. Um, and, and I think that, you know, you talk about, you know, what you're doing as a teacher versus a student, I think that I've become very soft as a teacher. Uh, if the 22-year-old version of me saw the 45-year-old version of me, I think I would say, what are you doing? What are you doing? People don't grow when you're just a stand-up comedian who tells some interesting stories. People grow when you have expectations and you provide support for them to meet those expectations. And, and I mean, I, I, I just, what, 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 what upsets me is, 
one of the most magical things a human being can experience is when you dream of achieving something and then you actually do it, right? You actually get to that moment. And the problem is you only do that if you believe in it before you achieve it, right? So belief precedes achievement. Right. And I, and I think nowadays, um, simply telling a kid, you, it's great to believe in yourself, but you understand that that belief is the first step. It's not the only step, right? So it, it, let me put it this way. My dad's generation would say, you know what? If you have high self-esteem, you damn well better achieve something before you feel so good about yourself, right? If you're cocky, if you're walking around high school like you're the man, right? That's because you scored the touchdown on Friday night. That's because you're the valedictorian. That's because you're the Valley speech champion. That's because you won the national science fair. It's because you, you're badass. You did something. So you know what? Feel good about yourself. But we've reversed that, Jack. Now we say, feel great about yourself. And because you feel great about yourself, you'll be in a position to achieve now. And I think that's completely backwards. Yeah. But what about, and I agree with you, but what about the kids that aren't the valedictorians? They're just kind of average at everything. Are they just supposed to feel like shit about themselves all the time? No, 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 but no, absolutely not. It, it, like for instance, for me, I was good, really good in English and history. I was awful in math. If I got a B, I felt good about myself. Like I had to work harder to get a B in math than I had to work in any other thing. But damn it, that was still an achievement, right? That was still something. I might, have, I, you know, you might be on a tennis team and somebody who's been playing tennis their whole life is the number one player. But dang it, somebody might have made that team who had never picked up a racket before. And that's a bigger achievement that they made it, right? They should True. still feel good. But the point is that, that achievement should rock the cradle of self-esteem, not the other way around, right? I want you to, to have a sense of self-worth. But I, I have students who feel so damn great about themselves sometimes. I'm like, well, what, what are you so cocky you about? Didn't you, you, you didn't you know, do what, shit. You didn't do shit. Like, what have you done that's so awesome? Like, I don't yeah, You it. tell them, I wrote a book. What have you done? <laughs> well, my, my students, uh, you know, some of them, they they think it's neat. I mean, I think they, I think to them it's kind of, you know, it, it, it's not normal to have a teacher who's, you know, in the LA Times or on Fox News. No, or, none of mine You know what I mean? So, so I think it's. You know, to them, it's, it's kind Maybe of... Maybe it just be, might be the Massachusetts public school system, but yeah. none of mine were in the LA Times. No, I, no, no, I think that they, I, I think they kind of get a little bit of a kick out of it. Um, and I, I and, but, but I, I also feel good about that because I tell them, look, guys, you know, I mean, even though I'm 40, you know, you don't think of middle-aged people as having dreams, right? You think of kids having dreams. No, I, I have dreams. I, 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 I would like this book to continue to grow. I really want it to be, you know, there's a number of, 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 of books I'd like to sell and I'm not really that close yet. I would like to get a contract for another book uh, and I'd like that to be more successful. So, you know, one of the things I tell my kids is you don't ever stop dreaming. You don't stop, you don't fail. You don't fail until you give up, right? That's when you fail. You just haven't succeeded yet, right? And so, you know, I think that it's good for my students and I think for my own children to see that dad fails. I mean, I still get, I mean, I got, I got two rejections this week for articles that I thought were great. And I'm like, what? You don't what? want to publish it? Fine. Yeah. And that happens all the time. That will never stop. That will never stop happening. That, that failure is a part of the process of success. And I'm happy that I get to share that with my students. I think it's good for them. It, it has to be good because I, I took microeconomics last semester. I know you're, and I'm taking macro now, but in micro, I would like go to the professor all the time for extra help. And I got to be in that class. And I was stoked. But yeah. she said she was uh, 
she, I told her, I was like, well, my grade, that's, you know, it's my, it's on me. Like, I can't blame the professor for shit. It's, I have to, there's no excuses. And that's what I hate. If you, it's all on you. Like, if you want the better grade, well, you have to put in extra time. There's no possible excuse that anyone can come up with that isn't BS to me. Because if, like, a lot of big issue in our, uh, our organization uh, outside of school is paying dues, right? Mm-hmm. There is no excuse to me for not being able to pay dues because if you cared about this thing that much, then you would have budgeted your summer allowance or right. you, know, you can work for your parents over the summer to make up the X amount of dollars. Like there's zero excuses anywhere and that's all in life. And I feel like we've just, why we give out crutches and it's bullshit. Yeah, no, I, and I think that like to a certain degree, you know, we kind of do that as adults too with, you know, we, we, we see our job as making things easier. You know, I was reading this article earlier today about how a lot of young people don't go out and play anymore. Like they literally spend like all playing is inside. Nobody, nobody that goes sucks. outside. No, yeah, nobody wants, like I used to wander the neighborhood. My mom, I mean, I would be gone four hours. I'd be like nine years old and I, my mom would have no idea where I was. So this idea that, you know, children are fragile, that you can't push them, that they're not responsible. Um, I think that's one of the most toxic ideas you can have because unless you push somebody, you really don't know what they're capable of. And I I think kids are more resilient and I think that they're more capable than we give them credit for. But but if you don't have a high, I I tell you what, you're never gonna reach a bar if you don't set it, right? I mean, like, like, like we think that like somehow a kid who doesn't succeed has been, you know, damaged no, maybe they've been inspired to double, double their efforts, right? And that's, you know, and that's, that's one, of the, one of the issues that I see a lot is uh, with, 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 you know, with our school system is we've lowered the bar and more people get past it. And yet we think we've achieved something. Well, we really haven't. I mean, what does it say when you have, uh, you know, more kids graduating from high school and test scores are in the gutter? It means that it's easy. Right? It, 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 that's exactly what it means. But anyhow, Jack, I got to go make dinner out here in California for my family. I can't tell you how much fun this has been. Oh, this has been great, uh, Jeremy. I'd love to have you back on. Well, thank you so much for giving the kid with the, the bottle of Tito's in his profile picture the time of day. I appreciate it. Hope, hopefully this was, was good for you. Hopefully this is what oh, you wanted. Oh, this has been fantastic. And, uh, this has been awesome. Okay, well, uh, uh, please recommend Hollowed Out to everybody and their sister. Yeah, everybody go and, read uh, Hollowed Out. Find it in a library, buy it on Amazon. Don't give it a one-star review. I had a one-star review pulled up uh, just for fun. And it was, be warned, the author, Jer- this is from Amazon. Be warned, the author, Jeremy, does not tell buyers that a third of the book he did not write. Shockingly dishonest. The last third is a full copy of Trump's 1776 committee report, which was rushed to publication four days before the end of his presidency. Yeah. The, yeah. Second, this book is an opinion piece with scant evidence to support the scores of comments and opinions by Jeremy. He was a teacher. Any teacher reading students' work expects opinions to be backed by supporting details. I am shocked that his hundreds of opinions have very little evidence, if any at all. Third, Did you look at the, the citation, the citation page? <laughs> yeah, like, you, I saw citations for every single thing you said. Yeah, I, yeah no, I, you know, and I wish I could tell you, like, I don't look at those. Um, and it's, you know, it's weird because like, you know, the book has good reviews. I mean, most yeah, there was, I was reading the five-star so, ones too, but I thought the one-star yeah, ones yeah. were really funny. Yeah. They're like two or three. Well, they didn't read the book. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but like, but like, I, that's part of who I am. Though. Like I can, like I teach college too. And I'll get like, I'll teach a class of 50 kids and I'll get 49 good reviews. 
And if I get one that's slightly oh, negative. The classic just, rate my professor. Oh, yeah, I, I, I obsess on that one. So yeah, if you would, uh, feel free, uh, feel free, uh, Jack, to go on and give me a, a nice five-star review there. Uh, I will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll bump up the average. I'll fluff it up. Yeah, I mean, and the review, the averages are good. I mean, like I said, it's a good, the, the, the reviews are good, but some of those one, the one-star, they didn't even look at it. So now, well, hey, sitting my friend, like a, all right, I'll see you later. All right, thank you so much for hopping on, Jeremy. Everybody go buy Hollowed Out. All Thanks, right. Take, take care. Take care. All right, bye-bye.